good to open the Word with you this morning. It's good to uh, bring a message. We need God's Word. We need God's Word all the time. We need to hear God's Word. We need to read God's Word. And especially on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, uh, we need to seek good preaching. We need to hear some exposition of Scripture. And I do miss uh, being with you all. I miss uh, just hearing you sing before I preach. That's a kind of a secret that preachers talk about. Uh, it, it really helps you to preach when you hear everyone singing loudly. It, it encourages the Spirit. And based on uh, what our president and governor have said this past week, uh, it seems like there is a light at the end of the tunnel soon. And it is daylight, and uh, it looks like we might be able to meet again in a few weeks. So we'll keep you posted on that. Well, this morning I want to look at Jesus and prayer. Really, what does Jesus teach us about prayer? You might think that this is all a, a physical concern right now, that the things going on in the world are just disease and government and work and economy. God has various plans that He's working out. Of course, we don't know what those are. But we do know that when we go through trials, when we go through different tribulations, that God expects something of us, that He expects we'll grow through it, that He expects that we'll grow and be more sanctified through this process. So while it may affect everyone else, we have a responsibility individually to grow as Christians through this. And one of the ways you can grow is through your prayer life. We could all do a better job with our prayer life. And so I want to bring to you a message today that's simply entitled, Let Us Pray During Coronavirus. You're probably tired of hearing about coronavirus. You're probably tired of hearing about COVID-19. Like me, you might just want to go a few days without even thinking about it. But the truth of the matter, it is affecting our world. All of us in some way are affected now. Many of us will be affected into the future, probably with an economic impact. What can we do about it? Well, we can pray. We can pray. You're, you're probably not in a place in the, in the world or in medicine or in the government where you can have a big impact. But you serve Almighty God, the God who created all things, the God who controls all things, the one who doesn't let one molecule go astray. And so we can pray. That is a very powerful thing. So during this time, many of us are, are staying at home more. Uh, maybe some of you are working from home more. Uh, maybe you're looking for ways to spend your time usefully. And uh, we can't neglect the power of prayer. We just can't. Prayer is essential to the Christian life. It's, it's part of who we are. We have a Father that we can speak with, that we can ask things of, that we can worship, and that we can talk to. And we need to be doing that. Well, the best place to learn about prayer is from Jesus Himself, the Son of God, the Messiah. Christ Himself taught much on prayer. He taught much on prayer. He taught His disciples on prayer, and He showed by example prayer in His prayer life and what He was doing. So we want to consider all that Jesus taught, all that He did. And generally, we can group these things in the Gospel accounts into three categories. These are the three points we're going to look at, probably one and two today. We'll see how we get through those, and then number three next week. Uh, the three groupings are the model for prayer. Number one, the model for prayer. This is Jesus himself. What, what did he do with prayer? Number two, the content of prayer. And this is what we should pray about. It's one thing to know that you should pray. It's another thing to, to know what to say, what to pray about. 
And then thirdly, the manner of prayer. What kind of thoughts and attitudes should we have during prayer? Should we uh, just focus on ourselves? What kind of things should we put out of our mind? Those are the things we'll look at next week. So the model, the content, and the manner of prayer are the three main headings of what's probably going to be a two-part series. Well, first of all, let's look at the model for prayer. Who's the model for prayer? It's Jesus. We have to come to, to learn from Christ. We have to come to His feet. Like, like Mary did in the Martha and Mary story. Martha's busy. She's preparing things. But where is Mary? Uh, she is worshiping at the feet of Christ. And Jesus says she's chose the better thing. She chose the better path. She is learning from Christ as he's teaching. We need to learn from Christ right now as he has shown us in the gospel accounts that he was a man of prayer. He lived a life continually of prayer. He is God. He is the Son of God, and He's speaking to His Father. The Father is, of course, God as well. And yet, Christ is praying. In His humanity, He is speaking to His Father. He is praying. And the Gospel accounts teach us about Jesus' prayer life. It doesn't tell us specifically what He prayed. The Gospel accounts don't tell us the words of Christ other than uh, John 17 and a few snippets in other places like in the Garden of Gethsemane. But for the most part, we get an example of how Christ prayed, when, where, the things that he did to pray. Of all the gospel accounts, Luke gives more of Christ's prayer life than any other. One of the main focuses in the gospel of Luke is prayer itself. And so it's only right that we should uh, go there. And it's probably easier to stay in one book as we look at these passages than it is to jump around. I will cite some other gospel accounts, of course, but... First, I want to take just a survey of Jesus' prayer life in the Gospel of Luke. Let's just do a Bible study. Let's just look at all the passages that touch on Jesus' prayer life. And then I'll come back and suggest some application for you for the model for prayer. So Jesus is the model. Let's look at him now. Luke chapter 3. Let's start there. And verse 21. Luke 3, 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, while he was praying, while he was in that moment of prayer, in the middle of his baptism, heaven was open. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. See if you don't notice a pattern as we go through the times that Luke mentions Jesus praying. Go now to chapter 5, verse 16. 5, 16. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. This this verb tense here for slip away, it means to withdraw, the the word does. And the tense is a continual tense. It's, It's in the present, so he's continuing to do it. He's continuing to draw away. He's continuing to pray as well. A continual practice that Jesus is doing. And despite how busy Jesus was, despite all the activity that he had going on, he found time to slip away and pray. Away from the crowds, away from his disciples. In fact, in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, the disciples are concerned because they can't find him. When they do find him, he's been praying for a long time. And they're sort of surprised, they're sort of shocked. And they say, 
Where have you been? We've been looking for you. Everyone's looking for you. And then he goes to, to be with them. But it's almost a surprise that he slipped away to pray. Chapter 6 of Luke. Go to chapter 6, verse 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. At this time. When, when the Pharisees uh, left to plot how they might kill Jesus before he had done a, a healing on the Sabbath. So he's done a healing on the Sabbath and they're plotting on how they would kill him. And it says at this time he went away to a mountain to pray. He left the distractions of the crowd. He went and concentrated on time with God, fellowship with God, communion with God. And often he would go to a mountain. Why? Not because mountains are sacred, but it sort of symbolized in our minds the fact of being closer to God. We're, we're away from people and we're high up. We're symbolizing a closer a physical relationship to God. And it said in, in Luke 6.12 that he spent the whole night in prayer to God. The whole night. He went away to the mountain by himself. He spent the whole night in prayer. It's the only passage in the New Testament that speaks of praying all night uh, definitively. And if we count up the hours from about 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. He's praying. At least 10 could be longer, but he's praying all night long. It, did, it doesn't mean he... He slept and then prayed and slept and then prayed. He actually stayed up all night praying. Go to Luke 9, 18. Luke 9, 18. And it happened that while he was praying alone. So again, he's alone here and he, the disciples were with him. So he's alone in the fact that he's away from the crowds. And he's probably slightly away from the disciples. They're close by. They're, they're kind of in their close vicinity. And they notice uh, that he'd been praying and he's done. Or he stops in the middle of his praying and he asks them, who do the people say that I am? A very important question, a very important teaching that has come about sort of in the middle of his prayer. Uh, while he's praying, during his prayer time, he asks them this question. Now go to chapter 9, verse 28. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James, so the inner three, and he went up on the mountain to pray. So again, he's going up on the mountain. He's going there for what? To pray. That's the main purpose of him going to the mountain. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. And his clothing became white and gleaming. So this is a transfiguration. We often think of the transfiguration. We think of it on the mountain. But we might forget that he's praying. He went there to pray. And this all sort of came about at the time that he's praying. Luke chapter 11 verse 1. 11.1, it says, It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. We're going to look at this in the, in the next point when we talk about the content of prayer. The, it's often called the Lord's Prayer. But the point here I want to make is that they saw him praying so much that they had to ask him. They wanted to ask him. They had a desire to ask him. How we should pray. What we should pray about. Go to Luke 22 now. We're coming near the cross. Luke chapter 22 verse 41. We're coming near the cross. Jesus in his humanity. He is, he is troubled. His soul he said. His spirit is troubled within him. And in Luke twenty-two forty-one, It says. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down. And began to pray. 
So what did Jesus do when, when it seemed like all things were closing in upon him? That his death was coming and of all people, he knew exactly what he was about to go through. No one else knows that about their death. He did. What does he do? He prays. He prays. Skip forward to verse 44. 2244. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. Very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. It, it was like drops of blood. It fell so profusely, his sweat did. He is intently praying here. He prayed more passionately when he was in agony. So, so what do we learn from all of these? These are the survey tour of Jesus' prayer life in the Gospel of Luke. A Gospel that mentions more about Jesus' prayer life than any other Gospel. What's the application here? What's the, the points we need to gather if we're just trying to learn a model for prayer? Well, first of all, as an application, we need to see that Jesus regularly prayed. Prayer as a regular routine. This was something he did regularly. And they noticed it. And they asked about it, his disciples did. If the perfect Son of God has to pray, has to communicate with his Father, wants to do that, even amidst all that he's doing, the, the Alpha, the Omega, the Son of God, who upholds the universe, had time and effort put into prayer. Don't you think we should as well? Don't you think we need to pray? How much more do we need to pray? Why don't we pray more regularly is the question. Why don't we pray more regularly? What's our excuses for praying, or I'm sorry, not praying more regularly? Why don't we have set times to pray? Do we have some, some reason that we give for that? I'll list some of the common reasons that people give for not praying. And you might have other ones, of course. The goal is not to list every excuse. But here's the three most common excuses people make when it comes to a prayer routine and setting aside time. One's just a lack of desire. I don't feel like it. I don't feel like praying. Why should I do something I don't feel like doing? That's not honoring to God. God wants me to feel it, so therefore I'm going to wait until I feel like doing it. That's the worst excuse. That, that's the worst, worst excuse. You don't, you don't wait to feel like it to show love to your spouse. What if you just waited to feel like going to work? You might not ever go to work. Uh, those are silly excuses. The point you should make, if you, if you don't feel like praying, you know what you should do? Pray about that. You should pray about that. You don't feel like praying, then pray to God to help you feel like praying. And keep praying to God about that until you feel like praying. And just start praying, and eventually you'll feel like it or you won't. doesn't matter. We're called to pray. There's no commands in Scripture that God says, you don't have to do this uh, unless you feel like it. God just says, do it. And so we've all experienced days where we don't feel like praying. We've all experienced days where we're not up for it physically, mentally, spiritually. But Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's sweating profusely like drops of blood. He knows his death is coming. And what does he do? He prays. He prays. So just because we struggle with the desire doesn't mean we have to let that get to us. Uh, that's, that, that's a lot, lot of the problem. Sometimes our lack of desire comes from the fact that we've heard all these little methods of prayer. And we're not following that method. So we feel like, well, we must not have much of a desire. Let's just put methods aside. We'll talk in a minute about content for prayer. But 
the point is, you have to pray to God. It should be a habit. It should be something that you regularly want to do. Another reason some people give for not praying is legalism. It just seems legalistic to set a prayer time each day. I mean, can't we just do it whenever? Of course. Paul, Paul says, pray continually, pray all the time, pray without ceasing. The Christian life, though, is not about legalism. It's not about duty, it's about grace. We have duties, but the Christian life is primarily about God's grace in our life. And so to say that it's legalistic to have a set prayer time, it really undermines a lot of things that are taught in Scripture. Most of us probably don't say it's legalistic to have a meal time each day with our family or three meals a day. Or it's legalistic to drink water when you're thirsty. Or it's legalistic to get sleep. Or it's legalistic to love your spouse. Legalistic to go on a date night. These things are set. They're scheduled. They're, they're times of our day and week we have no problem with. Well, let's do the same with prayer. Isn't prayer more important? Uh, these things are duties in our life that we have to do, like going to work sometimes or changing diapers or taking care of the kids screaming. But prayer is not like that. It shouldn't be a duty that we feel uh, we have to do in the sense of God's going to harm us if we don't. It should be a joy. It should be something that we want to do. It's, it's an essential part of the Christian life. It's why John Calvin said that prayer is the chief exercise of faith. It's not the chief duty of legalism. It's the chief exercise of faith, he said. And Jesus didn't say to the disciples, if you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your father who's in secret. In Matthew, he didn't say that. He said, when you pray. Here's how you do it. When you pray. He's assuming they're going to pray. So the real reason, though, I think after we set aside, I don't feel like it, and, and legalism, the most common reason, probably, is distractions. Distractions are the main reason we don't pray anywhere close to what Jesus prayed, what the disciples prayed, and what godly men and women from all of church history have on average done. It's distractions. Television, phones, internet, people to talk to, things to do, places to go. Social media takes up so many hours of our day. It really makes us addicted to it in a sense because we have to be on it and we soon forget the other things that we should be doing in the world. I think John Piper had a convicting little quote a few years back when he said one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. So we had so much time on Twitter and Facebook we can't make that excuse to God. We had no time to pray. Not saying those things are necessarily bad. We put our information from the church on those uh, media places. But the point is, if we're spending time there and then making the excuse we don't have time to pray, it's not going to cut it. We have to get alone to pray, which means getting away from our distractions. Not just people, of course, but also media. It's turning off our devices, turning off our phones. Not checking the email maybe until you've prayed first thing in the morning. And Matthew chapter 14, verse 23, after feeding the 5,000, Jesus sent the crowds away and went up on the mountain by himself to pray and be alone. He sent them away. There's a story about Charles Wesley, and he, he, I think his siblings amounted to eight or nine. And his mom had a very small house and eight or nine kids running around. 
And so she would just pull up her apron on her head when she wanted to pray. And the kids knew to leave her alone, to be quiet. That was her way of, of sort of getting away from the crowds. We have more opportunities, most of us, than that. And so we need to not have distractions. We need to get away to pray. We need to be like Martin Lloyd-Jones, who in 1944, the bombings are coming on London, and buildings are falling down around the city. The church itself has a cracked roof during this bombing raid, and he's in the middle of prayer when the bombs drop close. He's in the middle of prayer in a church service on a Sunday. And he just pauses a minute when when the ceiling cracks, and then he continues on in his prayer. And he finishes, and then he addresses the congregation and talks about how they need to move out of the building because it might not be stable. Well, that's serious prayer. He's not even uh, being distracted by bombings, which they would have been used to at that point in the war. But uh, we have to be serious. We have to not let distractions stop us. Get alone to pray. That's why Jesus did it. That's why he got alone. That's why he went away to the mountains. It doesn't sound like sort of the modern conception of Jesus. Modern conception in the world is Jesus is always there to meet everybody's needs. Well, in his earthly ministry, he sent 5,000 people away. After he saw some of their needs, saw to some of their needs, he sent them away. And then he went up and he spent some time in prayer. So we've got to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, Paul says, so we can have a regular time to meet with God. Are you committed to pray? To, to God on a regular basis every day? Are you committed to get up early, if that's what it takes, before everybody else in your house gets up? Or stay up late? It, the Bible doesn't specify a time. Morning is often a more common time because it's before the world gets busy. It's before the house gets noisy. It's before people wake up. And it's a time to get alone. Even, even the nature is quiet often in the night. So Jesus got away in the mornings to pray, it says in in Mark chapter 1. Daniel, the prophet Daniel, prayed three times a day, morning, noon, and evening. In Psalm 119, the psalmist says he prays seven times a day. Of course, we don't know how long that was. We don't know the times. But the point is there was a set schedule that those men had to pray. Some of the favorite biographies I like to read are from the, the 17th and 18th century. And it was a common practice then from the Puritans all the way through the end of the 1800s, that some men would get up in the middle of the night and pray for two hours and then go back to bed. So Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, said in his uh, biography that he got up at 2 a.m., prayed till 4 a.m., and then went back to sleep until the sun came up. Now, there's no set time in the Bible, as I said, but we have to pray in set times in your own life, set some times, and make those times for extended prayer. And then... Throughout your day, pray unceasingly. We should also uh, have set times to read our Bible, set times to come to church and learn, be together when we can do that again, of course. There's nothing wrong with having a set time of prayer. It might be in the morning, it might be at the end of the day. It might be with your children daily. So maybe you have an early time by yourself, and then you have a later time with your whole family where you pray. When we do family worship at night, each of our family members so it's sort of like a prayer meeting, a big, a big prayer meeting um, at my house. Routine. That was the first thing that Jesus taught us. The second application from his prayer life is that we need to pray before important decisions. Pray before important decisions. 
the application here is that Jesus spent a, a lengthy time in prayer because he had important decisions to make. Why did he pray all night? Remember I talked about how he prayed all night? Well, if you put that in the context of what's happening, it's right before choosing the 12 disciples. It's right before he's going to choose them. I don't think he's praying all night to ask God who are they going to be. He already knows that. He's praying for strength. He's praying for their strength. He's praying that they would follow him and be godly. I think he's praying for them quite a bit. Of course, he's praying for himself as well. He also, we see in church history in the Bible, we see prayer before certain events. So in Acts 6, before the seven deacons are chosen, the church prays about it. Acts 13, before sending out Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey, the church and the elders pray about it. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas then prayed before appointing elders in all their church plants as they come back. So when it comes to making big decisions, we see an example where Christians should be praying. And sometimes we hear in the Christian life things like, well, I'm just waiting on God to move, to make a decision, to go a certain direction. I'm just waiting on God to go into ministry. I'm just waiting on God to take this job. I'm just waiting on God to marry this person. As if we expect sort of a sign from heaven, as if the heavens would open and drop down a sign that tells us what to do. Well, the Bible talks about waiting on God and and watching, but it, it says that in the context of prayer. It talks about those things in the context of prayer. So if you're waiting on God, you better be praying to God at the same time. Those two cannot be separated. Waiting on God doesn't mean sitting around doing nothing. It means that you're waiting for a clear response as far as God to open the doors, not miraculously, but through providence. But the whole time you're praying, the whole time you're asking God to give you wisdom, you're asking God to give you strength, you're asking God to help you with decision making. He's our father. He's adopted us into his family. Why wouldn't our father want to help us to do the things that are according to his will? The third lesson we learn from Jesus' prayer life. He's a model for us. And the third application is we need to pray for strength in the work of God that He's given us. So whatever God's given you to do, you need to pray for strength. Whether it's a parent, whether it's serving in the church, and it's usually a combination of these things, whether it's serving your spouse, whether it is your, your, your job, all the different places in the world that God has given us things to do. We need to pray for strength. If they're godly, if they're biblical, pray for strength in those things. We can't do those things in our own strength. And even Christ, in His human flesh, He had weakness. He was fully human. He was fully God, but He was fully human. And He prayed for strength. We saw that. Luke mentions that Jesus was praying during very key points in His ministry. And while it doesn't say he was praying for strength, that's really the only thing we can get from it. The only thing we can conclude. If you look at how he's praying. Um, in 18.1, he even says, now he was telling them a parable to show them at all times they ought to pray and to not lose heart. So he's not only praying himself for strength, but he's teaching the disciples how to pray for strength as well. Uh, we'll look at that passage probably next Sunday, Luke 18. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and twice he tells the disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
So you're not just praying for, for strength that you'll do something well for God, but you're praying for strength that you won't stumble, that you won't fall, that you won't sin, that you won't uh, let God down in the sense of not doing what He's told you to do. God's not going to cast a believer into hell for sinning or failing, but we do need to ask Him to prevent that. We need to be humble, not prideful. But when we fall back into sinful attitudes and, and sinful actions, well, we need to go to God and we need to confess our sins and ask Him to strengthen us once again. Too many believers are just moping about their sins. We even have accountability groups, which aren't always bad, but sometimes people get into those just so they can talk about how much they sin and detail their sin and tell people all about their sin. But we, we forget to go to God in prayer about our sin. Lord, help me to turn from that. Strengthen me. For the trials ahead. Strengthen me for the road ahead. John Bunyan, the great Puritan writer, said, You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. Pray often, for prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to Satan. And he's right. Look at how much prayer can do. So you haven't done all that you can until you've asked God for strength to do it. That's why David in the psalm says, the Lord is my strength and my shield. So Jesus left us a great example. He is the model. He is the one we ought to follow. He is the Christ, the Son of God. Prayer doesn't obtain any righteous standing before God. Just simply saying some words to God doesn't save you. That's by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But in the Christian life, ongoing transformation, ongoing sanctification, we need to follow the Lord and watch Him and learn from Him about prayer. So that's the model. Let's now look at the content of prayer. Secondly, the content. Second major point, the content of prayer means what exactly should we be praying about? Now sort of a flippant answer is, Whatever we want. It's God. He'll listen to whatever we want. That's true. It may not be the, the right things to be asking for or the right things to be saying. But God will hear you. Even if you're just starting out in prayer, maybe you're, you don't feel all that confident. Maybe you're a new believer. There's no set structure other than what Jesus gives us here and what's called the Lord's Prayer or really it should be the disciples' prayer. Go to Luke chapter 11. And Jesus is going to teach them about prayer in the, the content of one's prayer. What are the major categories that we need to be hitting in our prayer life as Jesus taught us to do? Now you can add to that. You can say other things to God that aren't in these categories. But he taught certain things. Look at Luke 11 verse 1. It happened that while Jesus was praying, again we've looked at this verse, while he's in prayer... In a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. They'd seen John the Baptist teaching his disciples how to pray. John had disciples as well. And the disciples of Christ are saying, Lord, teach us. Teach us how to pray. They'd seen Jesus do it so much that they had to ask him. And they didn't want to interrupt him. They waited, in this case, until he was done praying. But they wanted specifically to know what types of things should we be praying about? How do we know if our prayer requests and the things we say to God are 
going the right direction? Are we making up our own selfish things in prayer? Or are we doing what God wants us to do? And so they're saying, teach us. Teach us, Lord. Teach us to pray. So when Jesus came to them, he says, when you pray, say. Now notice again, he says, when you pray. Before I mentioned the passage in Matthew, it says, when you go into your inner closet. You know that passage, when you go into your inner closet? Don't make a big fuss about it. Don't be showy. Do it privately. He's assuming you'll do it. Here, the disciples' prayer that he's going to teach them. When you pray. He knows they're going to pray. He's helping them to do it better. So he's going to give them a model prayer for the Christian. Now we have to stop and just say, these are not the exact words you need to pray every single time that you pray. Sometimes people think what's called the Lord's Prayer is some sort of magical saying. So if you say it out loud, that does something for you. And often as a, as a young person in uh, football, we would pray the Lord's Prayer as a football team before we went out on the field. This was in high school before the days where that was legal. And the coach would lead us. And I think we all felt like, I know I did, that that was some sort of magical charm that would help us to win the game. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Just to repeat these words over and over is not the idea that he has in mind here. I know some church services do that. We choose not to do that here. There's nothing wrong with reciting the Lord's Prayer in the service, but it's not meant to be the same exact words every time that we pray. So he's giving us just a few lines here to guide us. And he's going to help us. He's going to give us some different parts that should be in our prayer. He's saying, look, this is like a tuning fork to sort of measure that your prayer life is in the right pitch. Is it sounding right? It's sort of a model to, to hang our personal petitions to God on. So when you're in prayer, he says, disciples, when you're in prayer, pray like this. Make sure your prayer's got these major themes. And there's five of them. There, there's five parts of a model prayer that Jesus gives. The first two focus on God. So I'm going to list the five as we go through the prayer. The, the first two focus on God. And then the last three are requests that we make for ourselves. Now notice as we go through this that it's always us. It's always we. He's assuming that believers will pray together. And when they pray individually, they'll pray for one another. There's no I. When you pray, say this. I, I, I. It's us and it's we. So God is our Father. He starts off, first of all, by focusing on God. The first part of your prayer should focus on God. Focus on God first. Father, hallowed be your name. We should start off recognizing who God is. Who God is. The fact that He is our God and that He is our Father. If you're in Christ, He's adopted you. You're His child. And speak to Him like that. He's not an impersonal God. See, unbelievers, they just speak of God in general. And if they try to pray, then they just pray to God in general. As believers in Christ, He's our Father. He's the one who hears us. He's like a good earthly father who wants to bless his children. Not only, is he, uh, not only is he our father, but he's saying here, hallowed be your name. We've got to honor God's name. We have to recognize it as holy. That's what hallowed means. It's an old English word that's sort of stuck in our translation. But it means to, to make holy, to recognize as holy. God will, of course, make His name holy on the earth. 
God will vindicate his name before all the world. And the way that he's going to do that is through his church. He's going to make his name holy as the church goes out. And then someday when Christ returns, of course, Christ will be here in the flesh, making God's name holy upon the earth. But as we go out as a church, as we proclaim the gospel here and around the world, we're making God's name holy. We're, we're setting it apart. We're, t- we're telling them that God, the God that has this name, is set apart. He's not like us. He's not a sinner like us. He's not a man that he would lie. He is perfect. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. And we need to recognize that in our prayer. I don't know if you recognized it when I was reading John 17. But Jesus said, I've made your name known to them and will make it known. He'll continue to make God's name known to God's people. John 12, 28. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. God the Father will glorify his name through the Son, through Jesus Christ. And when we say, Father, hallowed be your name, we are saying the same thing as Christ said. We are recognizing who God is and that he is holy. God said he would do this in Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36, right before he goes into the new covenant, the new covenant that Christ will ratify with his blood, the new covenant we receive cleansing and forgiveness in the Holy Spirit. Right before that in Ezekiel 36, God says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. So the nations mock, they scoff, they laugh at God's name. And he goes on here, he says, which you have profaned in their midst. So Israel actually profaned. They helped the world think wrongly about God. He goes on to say, then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. How does the world know who God is? Well, partly through God's people. Of course, we need the word to show them. But God's people take the truth to the world. And they see that God is holy. So a Christ-like prayer has got to begin with that praising and glorifying God. And you might open that up to be many minutes of your prayer. You might spend 15, 20, 30 minutes maybe just praising God in your prayer. That's good. Secondly, after we focus on God first, we need to focus on God's coming kingdom. We need to focus on God's coming kingdom. So we, we talked about who God is. Now, when we talk about the kingdom, we're looking at what God is doing and going to do in the future. Jesus says, Father, hallowed be your name. That's how we should pray. And we should pray, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. When we pray that kind of prayer, that that verse right there, we're asking for God's desires and for his commands to be perfectly obeyed upon the earth. If God's kingdom is upon the earth, then all people's, will obey Him. All peoples will love Him. All peoples will worship Him. In Matthew, Jesus teaches on the Lord's Prayer in a little different part of His ministry. This was a a teaching that came up at least twice. Uh, Disciples, you know, it took them a while to sometimes get the point. And so Jesus would have to come back and teach them. Well, in Matthew 6, whenever it says, Your kingdom come, Jesus says, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So right now in heaven, God's perfect will is being done by the angels. 
They are obeying him. They are doing exactly what he would have them to do. They are obeying God's will. They're carrying it out. And it's not yet obeyed like that upon the earth. So Jesus is saying, pray that it will be in the future. How's that going to happen? Well, your kingdom will come. Your kingdom will come. I know some teach that the kingdom is already here. But this kingdom Jesus is talking about right here hasn't come yet. Because he's saying, pray that it will come in the future. So what kind of kingdom is this? Well, it's not the universal reign of God where he holds up all things. Because that's been happening since creation. Jesus wouldn't say, pray that God would would hold all things in his hands and reign over all the universe. The Father's been doing that since he created. Since he created. It's not the universal kingdom. But he's talking about here of the messianic kingdom. When the Son of God rules upon the earth. When the Son of God rules in the flesh. Upon the throne of David. On the earth. We're to keep praying for that. We're to keep praying for Christ to return, in other words, and set up his perfect reign, his perfect rule. You want to spend your life worrying about pandemics, worrying about disease and death and the world and governments? Or do you want to look forward to Christ when he comes back? Pray that your kingdom would come. Pray that Christ would come back and rule upon the earth. That's what he's teaching us here. That God's rule through the Messiah where the whole earth and all the people obey and love the Lord. The commentator J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says, The plainest and simplest sense of this word right here, this phrase, your kingdom come, is the promised kingdom which God is one day to take to himself all over the world, the one foretold by Daniel and the other prophets, when Satan shall cease to be the prince of the world and the millennium shall begin. We look forward to that. Christ ruling upon the earth. So don't just pray and start asking for things you want. Start with God and focus on Him. And then focus on God's reign upon the earth when Christ comes back. Pray that Christ would come. Your your kingdom come. You're denying yourself. You're, You're waiting to ask for your request. And you're focusing on what God wants and who God is. He is the ruler of our lives. He's the ruler of the whole earth. And so we pray that all nations would submit to Him Someday in the kingdom. Famous preacher James Montgomery Boyce said, It should be evident from the imperfect nature of the kingdom of God that that we think is on the earth today. We think often that the kingdom of God is on the earth today. That's not right because it's not even perfected. He says, Boyce says, There is yet to be a kingdom in which the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ will be totally recognized. So that's the first two petitions or first two things that we should be having in our prayer. The third part is now to ask for provision. We've got to ask God to provide. Often we start with this, and Jesus is saying we should wait. Focus on God. Now come and ask for your request. Remember, this is what he taught when it comes to worry. He said, seek the kingdom first, and all these things will be given to you. You'll be taken care of if you put... Your mind on God first. Verse 3, Luke eleven three. 3. Give us each day our daily bread. We must ask God to provide for us on a regular basis. We need His help. Each day here in Greek means that it's necessary to survive each day of our life. Give us the things we need every day of our life, Lord. 
the daily bread, the food, the necessary items in life. He's not saying you're going to be healthy and wealthy. He's not saying ask God to make you a millionaire. Ask God to make you prosperous. This is where the prosperity gospel is so heretical. They say the good news of Christ is that he will bless us and give us all that we need. And you have all these churches around saying, if we just pray this prayer and have enough faith, God will give us everything. That's not what Jesus says. Give us each day our daily bread. That's where our focus should be. If God blesses us with money, if God blesses us with wealth, well, that's his prerogative. But we ought not to think that he's promised that to us and that that's the good news of the gospel because it's not. Now, this doesn't mean that, you know, God just keep us barely alive, keep us starving. Let's not go too far the other way. The things we need each day, clothes, food. In a modern world, you probably need a car, right? Work, a house, a shelter. See, this is why we're not praying these exact words every single time we pray. Jesus is giving us categories. He's giving us things to hang our prayers on here. So by saying, Lord, give us each day our daily bread, We're admitting that we depend on God for everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. And we're just confessing that when we say, give us each day our daily bread. Please, Lord, take care of us. In times when people are losing their jobs, in times where a guy goes to work tomorrow and he doesn't know if he's going to get to keep his job, I think 22 million people are already out of work in the United States. And not only that, we have long-term economic impacts. So even if you own your own business today and you're doing fine, what is it going to look like in three months? Well, people have the money to continue to come to you as one of your customers. But we shouldn't worry. Give us each day our daily bread. Take care of us, Lord. Help us. Provide for us. Protect us. Physically protect us. Keep us. Let us be healthy. There's nothing wrong with praying that. There's nothing wrong with praying for good health. What's wrong is when you start saying, God owes it to me, or that's the good news of the gospel, that God will give me perfect health, that will heal me from all diseases, and that he'll bless me with riches. But there's nothing wrong with asking God for good health, that you might serve him according to his will. Fourth part of your prayer, Jesus says, is to ask God to forgive us. This is in verse 4. And forgive us our sins. Forgive us our sins, God. Forgive us, because we sin every day as Christians. Forgive us of our ongoing sin in our life. That's part of sanctification. You're going to sin, now you need to repent, and you need to ask God to forgive you. Now some might ask, why why do we need to ask God for forgiveness? Hasn't He already fully forgiven us? Yes. If you're a Christian, if, if you trusted in Christ alone, I'm not saying that you've been baptized in the past and that made you saved or that you've said a certain prayer maybe and think that that saved you or you've done works and that that saved you. But if you truly trusted in Christ, if you've truly submitted your life to him and turned from your sin, you have been fully forgiven of all past sins, of all present sins, of all future sins. But that's talking about a judicial forgiveness. A judicial forgiveness means that you're not going to be judged for those sins and sent to hell for eternity. So what's Jesus talking about here? He's talking about what we might call parental forgiveness. There's a difference in a judge and your father. A judge can send you to jail. 
Your father is probably not going to send you to jail. He's going to bless you and help you when you come to him and ask for forgiveness. You commit a crime, you might ask for forgiveness. The judge can still send you to jail for as long as the sentence uh, will require. What is parental forgiveness? Well, this is where God our Father wants to free us from the discomfort of his discipline. So God has said that even when believers sin, they'll be disciplined. You can read Hebrews 12 for that. You can read the epistles of Paul. You can look at church discipline in Scripture. These are types of discipline that are brought upon the believer when they sin and don't repent. And if they continue to, resin, uh, continue to sin and not repent, they'll be disciplined in this life. Because God can't just overlook sin. Oh, oh, you've been forgiven for eternity, so now go and have fun and do whatever you want and sin all you want in this life. No, there's a parental forgiveness. If, if my child sins against me, they, they don't get kicked out of the family, but they get disciplined. They get punished. And so that's what Jesus is speaking of here. It's similar. It's exactly the same, actually. When Peter came, and remember they were being, uh, Jesus washing their feet. And Peter was sort of being prideful and says, Oh, Lord, just wash my whole body. You know, he's being sarcastic. And Jesus said, You don't need a bath. You just need your feet clean. Well, that's a teaching on sanctification. He was saying, You've been cleansed by me, Jesus is saying. You've been fully cleansed. Judicially, you've been forgiven. But you're still walking upon the earth. You're still walking the Christian life. You still need a, a cleansing of your feet. And theologians have called that a parental type of forgiveness. Where you're forgiven of the, the discipline that might come upon you. If you continue in that sin. So we need this parental forgiveness. We need to walk with the Lord in faith and love and repentance. And ask him, Lord, forgive us. Because if we don't confess, we're going to be disciplined. We're going to be disciplined. So Jesus says, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins. These are Christ's disciples, his followers. And he's telling them throughout their lives, they should pray this type of prayer to God. How glorious is that, that we have a father who's willing to do that for us. All through the blood of Christ. And he goes on to say, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. We forgive others. Forgive us, Lord like we are forgiving others. When someone's indebted to you, it means that they've committed a sin against you. They have a moral debt. And they come to you and ask for forgiveness. You need to forgive them. You need to forgive them. Forgiving others is a major indicator of being a true born-again Christian. In fact, if you don't forgive others, Jesus says, you won't be forgiven, which means you're not a Christian to begin with. You're not a true believer to begin with. Matthew 6, 14. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. So we need to forgive others. That's why Charles Spurgeon said, unless you have forgiven others, you read your own death warrant when you repeat the Lord's Prayer. You shouldn't even say these things if you haven't forgiven others. Because that's a death warrant. So you need to ask, have you, have you forgiven others in your heart? Are you asking God for forgiveness regularly and have you forgiven others? Now, number five, the last part of the content Jesus teaches here on how or what specifically we should pray is to ask for protection from sin. We've got to ask for protection from sin. Lead us not into temptation. Now, again, it's just a few short words there. But you need to open that up in your prayer life. You need to 
to go on. You need to put specifically in your prayer the sins you struggle with and temptations. I had this professor. He had been teaching for so long in seminary that he taught John MacArthur. And his last year was when he taught my class on prayer, Dr. Roscup. But we had to do this prayer journal and turn it into him each week. And he'd always say, well, you said that you're a sinner, but you didn't specify the sins. And so every week I had to get more specific, not so he could read it, but so that he knew I was talking to God and being specific about the sins that I was confessing. Well, we need to ask God for help in this. God does not tempt us. God does not make us sin. James 1.13 is clear about that. But God does allow us to be put in situations so that we would be tested. The devil tempts, God tests. And so Jesus is saying, don't lead us. Don't let us be in those situations, God. Don't let us. And if you are putting us in a situation like that, God, then help us to be strong and not to sin. I think it was last year that the Pope wanted to change the translation of this passage because he struggled with the idea of God leading people into temptation. That's not what Christ is saying. He's saying, pray that God would strengthen you so when God tests you, you're not tempted. So that when God tests you and Satan tempts you, that you don't follow Satan's devices and seek after your own sinful desires. There is a difference, and it often comes with pride. Pride says, doesn't matter what happens, I can handle it. But humble, humility comes with saying, God, help me. Lead us not into temptation. Go to Luke 22, and I want you to see a contrast here. And it's within just uh, the same chapter, actually. Luke 22, 31. Look what Peter says in his pride. I'm never going to leave you. That was his pride. And here's what Jesus says. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So he's going to be tempted. Peter doesn't think he'll ever be tempted. I'll never leave you, Christ. And Jesus says, you will. Satan's going to sift you like wheat. He's going to shake you up. But I prayed so that you won't ultimately turn away. And then he says, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So he will stumble. He will sin. And because of his pride, he did not think he needed to pray. Go over to verse 40 in the same chapter here, verse 40. Here's the difference. Peter was prideful, didn't think he would ever stumble. And then in verse 40, when he arrived at the place, this is the garden, he said to his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away, and he knelt down and began to pray saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Christ was willing to submit to the Father's will. He was humbling himself in his humanity here. He was saying, your will be done. In his humanity, he didn't want to go through a gruesome death. No human should enjoy that. But he said, your will be done, Father. And he told the disciples, pray right now that you won't stumble, that you won't fall into temptation. So that's what it means to ask that God would not lead us into temptation. Lord, please keep me, keep us from tempting situations. Because we're still weak. 
But we still have remaining sin in us that needs to be cleansed out. And I might not be able to hold up against the temptation. God, help me in this time. Maybe you're tempted right now to sin. But in your isolation, often people can sin with their minds. They can sin with what they see. They can sin with the internet. They can sin with the way they treat their family members that they're locked up with all day. They can sin against their children as they get sort of tired of being cooped up all day with them. They can sin against their spouse who might be at home more often. They can sin against God and the fact that they're doubting all the things that are going on in our world. What are you doing, God? They can, they can even sin against government leaders by disobeying Romans 13 in certain ways. But let's ask the Lord to strengthen us, to keep us from temptation. So we've looked at two out of the three. We've looked at the model for prayer. That's Jesus. And we've looked at the content, what, what our prayer should include. And it should include those last five things there from the disciples' prayer, what's called the Lord's Prayer. Next week, though, we'll look at, for a whole sermon, the manner of prayer. What should be going on in our heart and our minds when we're praying? Why should we pray? What does that attitude look like? So I hope you'll join us again next week as we do that. Seek the Lord in prayer. Use the time between today and and next Sunday as a time to really ramp up your prayer life. Pray more. You can excel still more. Even if you're a great prayer warrior, you can excel still more. You can't top Jesus in his prayer life. And most of us, though, aren't at the place where we could say we're doing great. Most of us need to work on our prayer life this week. And what better time to do it could be that God has, uh, we don't have to say could be, we know. We know that God has brought a tribulation upon the world for many reasons, one of which is to grow us. And one of the ways we can grow is in our prayer life. So let's pray now that God would do that for each one of us. Father, we come before you asking for your help. We come before you admitting that we're weak, that we don't pray enough. When we do pray, it just sounds like murmuring. It sounds like babble. It, 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 even if we're making words, it, it just sounds like we're not praying the right things. And we struggle sometimes with what to say. Lord, we, we ask that you would help us. Help us to pray. Help us to use the Bible to pray better. Help us to be encouraged by other believers to pray more. Help us to have a desire for prayer. A a desire that says, I have to meet with the Lord this morning. Let us be like Martin Luther who wanted to, to pray three hours on a light day and four on a busy day. Lord, it's not about the amount of time that we pray. We know that. But we all need to spend more time in connecting with you. And speaking with you. Prayer is so important for us God. You know that. You've given it to us as a means of grace. As a spiritual discipline. So we pray Lord that you would help us to excel still more. Help us to be godly and sanctified through our prayer life. In Jesus name. Amen.